Welcome to the Weekly Benefit Roast, featuring Benefit Indemnity Corporation's President, Roger Bain. Roger has devoted more than 30 years to understanding and developing innovative health benefits plans for large groups and groups as small as five employees. Our moderator is Bob Graham. Take it away, Bob. Hey, welcome to this week's Benefit Roast, where we talk about health benefits over a virtual cup of coffee. It is April 8th, 2019. I can't seem to get the year right, but here we go, 2019. And we are going to talk today about two really big events, a court ruling and a statement by the president, both of which really affect health benefits and small business, medium-sized businesses. So. Before we get started with that, Roger, I want to just give some ground rules. We've got an audience I can see, and I want to make real clear that we're not going to be talking about politics and policy as much as we're going to be talking about what this means for business owners and how they deliver benefits to their employees. So with those ground rules, if you want to join in with us, all you need to do is go to the chat feature and you can type a message, or if you want to go on air with us, just say you'd like to be uh, open, you'd like us to open your mic and we'll put you on air. Uh, Roger, with that, why don't you tell us first about the big court ruling? Can you do that? Well, uh, yeah, one of the federal district courts basically ruled down President Trump's executive orders, creating a more open platform for the development of association health plans and health plans that could be sold across state lines. Part of the rationale for that, the judge said it was a direct runaround to the law because it allowed those plans to sell benefit designs and structures that could have compromised coverage significantly compared to what the law required for qualified ACA plans. It's an interesting loophole that was attempted, but in reality that that still exists in the world of self-funded benefits and others. But the fear, I guess, by this judge is that this association health plan allowed fully insured plans to circumvent a law directly targeting those. So what it means is all of those hoping to round up a group of people to band together to get better health insurance rates won't get that. Now, honestly, Bob, I don't think they would have gotten that for long anyway. It would have been artificial rating structures in order to achieve that. It wouldn't have been really, truly a value proposition based upon the way the regs were built. They would have been stuck and confined with a lot of the ACA regs anyway. Uh, but that's kind of the nature of the beast in, in what those regs would have done or might have done. Uh, it still allows the opportunity for associations to create affinity plans or relationships where they make uh, special arrangements with carriers to to do what they can do in the self-funded markets and with other coverages like dental and vision and still provide comparable benefits to their membership. But it certainly doesn't help those associations that have a whole lot of one and two and three employee groups that were really looking for some panacea of an association health plan solution. Again, I don't think it was going to truly exist anyway. But until or unless this court order is appealed or challenged again, we won't even have the opportunity to find out. Interestingly enough, most of the articles you read on this will also say that there are thousands of employees that were already in these plans uh, since the formation of the regulation. 
which I find very interesting because thousands in the world of health plans is a very, very small number. They didn't say tens of thousands. They didn't say hundreds of thousands. They said thousands nationally, which really isn't much. So it's not like we have a great dismantling project for those that exist already. Uh, but we certainly don't have a solution going forward along the lines of that true association health plan, which I think we did a uh, benefit roast discussion on those a few weeks back, which, you know, if we refer back to that one, I think you'll find that they probably wouldn't work real well with the set of regs we were given anyway. Sorry, That's I know that was a long Roger, way to answer, want to jump in. Trevor, Trevor says, hey, you told us these weren't going to work a couple weeks ago. Were you actually correct or not? And I think what you indicated, Roger, help me, help me if I'm wrong, but you indicate that they would fall under their own weight. You didn't anticipate that a court challenge might be the uh, falling point of these, correct? Well, that's correct. I, I, was, I had a very good prediction that they weren't going to work, but not based on the terms that they're not going to be allowed. Uh, at this point, it looks like the legislation it has been, or the executive order, really, it wasn't even legislation. The executive order has been stricken down by a judge's decision to uphold the written legislation over the executive order. Uh, and so that's precisely where we are today. And under those regulations, that's what I discussed a few weeks ago to, to suggest that they really were not equipped to function properly anyway. And of course, that ruling can be appealed to a higher court, but I'm not sure it will be. Everything I've read would suggest that this probably is just going to fall by the wayside. There are more important things going on these days in the White House, I think. Which brings us to the other issue, Roger, that the president made a statement last week about the future of the ACA. And I know you were away for part of the week, so let me just do some quick updating. The president said after suggesting that they were going to replace the Affordable Care Act in some way the Republicans would in the next year or so, they are now suggesting that they're going to wait until after the 2020 elections when uh, I guess we'll see what uh, kind of Congress we have. Right now, it'd be a little more difficult with a Republican House, uh, I mean, with the Democratic House and Republican Senate to pass any kind of legitimate or substantial reform. What are your thoughts on that, Roger? Well, Bob, during the whole repeal and replace effort of the Republicans, when they did, in fact, have control before the midterm elections, I saw grossly inadequate efforts by both parties to achieve anything. And most disappointing was even the controlling party at the time did not put forth meaningful and significant replace and reform measures. They did a whole lot to try and dismantle the existing legislation, but very little to replace it with anything that would continue to maintain the consumer protections that were required. So it, it'll be an interesting exercise to see if they can get it right this time. And I would suggest to you that getting it right would achieve bipartisan support subject only to the emotional egos that might make that seem impossible across the board today. And again, I know we're not talking politics, but there is an element of that. There's an element of politics in healthcare reform. No matter how good the proposed legislation is, it, it may run into uh, offensive measures just because. Roger, I've got a question from Cliff. He asks, 
if you could rebuild the law to work better for small businesses, what would you include and what would you exclude? Well, that's that's pretty easy in my opinion. Um, back in 1996, the Clinton administration, after Hillary failed miserably to try and pass her own health care reform legislation that we all called Hillary Care at the time, after the failure of that, what the Clinton administration was successful in getting passed was a law called HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. Now, under that HIPAA Act, there was a whole lot of talk about privacy. So we, most of us know HIPAA as the Privacy Act, but truly it wasn't about that. Privacy was actually phased in after the first two years of the legislation that was an added element to it. The real functionality of HIPAA was to provide that health insurance portability, to prevent job lock, to provide guaranteed issue of coverage, and hopefully to provide rating protections. So to me, that's our starting point. HIPAA redefined pre-existing condition clauses so that all the gaming and problems of insurance companies imposing pre-existing condition clauses on people unfairly in years past was outlawed. And anybody that was in the system and stayed in the system continuously for 12 months and beyond would never, ever have to be facing a pre-existing condition clause again under the following terms. This was true in respect to their efforts to provide guaranteed issue, full portability from individual plans to group plans, from group plans to other group plans, and from group plans to individual plans. But what the federal government did is they forgot that individual coverage to individual coverage is important as well, especially and even if it's only because a carrier ceased to do business and left everybody high and dry, they have to be able to get coverage in any other individual product available in the marketplace. The original draft of HIPAA missed that element. So if people were in an individual plan that decided they couldn't survive, they were closing down their doors and no longer offering coverage, those people would have no coverage, and any of them that had been sick would not be able to get coverage elsewhere. So that's the first fix. You got to fix portability under HIPAA so that it provides guaranteed issue for all transfers of benefits from one place to another, along with portability, so that there is no pre existing condition clause for any responsible American that stayed covered. Now, I know that sounds controversial, right? Because everybody likes to hear that no one should have a pre-existing condition clause. The problem is when we go into the law with no pre-existing condition clause, we end up with something like we did in ACA. People wait until they get sick, they enroll then, they get all their treatment, and then they drop paying their coverage until they get sick again. And the challenge with that is just like a fire insurance company trying to issue fire insurance for homes that are already on fire. It just doesn't make sense and it doesn't work. And that's why you've seen the radical shift in the individual markets around this country where a lot of states have been left with one or two players left in the market. And some were even challenged at some point to have no individual coverage available in markets. Now, most of that has been at least recovered so that we have at least one carrier in every part of America for individual coverage. But is that enough to give people choice and competition and flexibility? Certainly not. It's not what the law promised or intended 
by statements of the legislature leading into this law. So that's the first thing, is we've got to tighten up the pre-existing condition clauses so that no one ever can be penalized when they've had coverage all along. Just because they move from one employer to another or one health insurance company to another doesn't mean they can have a new pre-existing condition clause imposed. It is only those people that attempt to game the system that would be facing that challenge. So that's a reasonable thing to help save everybody else money because everybody that is responsible in the coverage pays the bills for those that are not. That's the nature of insurance. So that's the first element. The second element that was neglected by the federal government, or not actually, let's change that, that wasn't neglected by the federal government, it was left up to the states by the federal government and many states neglected to pass sister legislation to HIPAA to regulate rates. So the law said, Every state in this country for groups of two to 50 employees, you have guaranteed issue of your health insurance coverage and the rates will be regulated by the state within a certain margin. And I believe, and, and don't quote me on this one, Bob, because it's been a lot of years, but I think it was a 300% rating maximum, might've been a thousand. I think it was 300. And so what the problem with that was, is if you provide a small employer guaranteed issue of coverage, but because they're sick, you charge them three times as much as you charge somebody else, then the coverage isn't affordable. And we've talked about another benefit, Rose, that access and affordability are codependent terms when we talk about healthcare reform. So guaranteeing access to coverage doesn't help if it's not affordable. And if it's affordable, but you can't get it, that doesn't help either. So we need to balance both. And that's where HIPAA had a really good shot they just missed those two things. They missed a little bit on the portability, and then they didn't impose rating guidelines like they did under the ACA or like many state healthcare reforms did. Instead, they left it up to the states, and every state that did nothing was left with no reform, and HIPAA was ineffective. In fact, brokers, insurance professionals, as well as consumers, had no idea that there was guaranteed issue of coverage because they didn't feel the benefit of that because the rate could be charged 300% of the original rate because of a medical condition. So it's not guaranteed issue if you can't afford it. So that's the building block. The first building block of this is let's make sure everybody has guaranteed issue of coverage within a certain rating card or and guideline that makes reasonable sense so that everybody can afford it. It's okay to have those that use more healthcare pay a little bit more, but not 300%. So we've got to control that. That's what insurance also does. It buffers one person's high risk with the rest of the low risk. And we need to keep that buffering in and not allow the insurance companies to game that to any magnitude. So we control the rates, we control guaranteed issue, and we impose limits and prohibition against pre-existing condition clauses that would force Americans to go through this process over and over. Once you're in, you're in. The other thing I would say is that under HIPAA, if someone had a 63-day break in coverage, then in fact, they could be faced with a new pre-existing condition clause when they go reapply for coverage. Again, this is the, you're not allowed to wait until you get sick to buy coverage provision, right? So if we're gonna prevent people from waiting until they get sick to buy coverage, we have to have some 
penalty imposed for those that do wait until they get sick. And that's what a pre-existing condition clause is for. However, we can easily change that also by keeping that 63-day provision, but providing some form of a hardship clause. If somebody is in a true hardship in life, financially or otherwise, that they simply can't come up with the coverage on that 64th day or that 63rd day, then there's got to be a provision, some form of qualifications to help those people get back into coverage as soon as they're back on their feet without having to meet a new pre-existing condition clause. What those rules are, I don't know. We'd have to draft that. But those are the components of successful reform. We've got to get out of the hair of the insurance companies when they're doing the right thing, but we've got to prevent them from doing the wrong thing. Instead, the ACA took over all of those aspects and just crushed them on every level, making it impossible to do business as effectively as they could and leaving us with no responsible risk management whatsoever, which is essential in the insurance business. All right, let's think about it. Insurance is insurance. It's designed to protect against risk. And if you strip the insurance companies of the ability to manage that risk, you're going to get rates that are crushing. And that's where we are today. We have higher deductibles in this country than we have ever had before. And we're being smacked by it every single day. Roger, so, I've got a whole bunch of questions. You've opened the floodgates. All right, let's That's go. Right there. Patricia says, my company can't afford health insurance. Would your suggestions here make it more affordable for my employer and for me so that we could have insurance? I'm sorry, Bob, could you repeat that one more time? Yeah, Patricia said, my company can't afford health insurance. Would your approach make it more affordable for me and my company so we could actually have health insurance? Well, I would say the answer is yes. Um, the In the small group arena, we've been hurt with significant provisions of the ACA that make it much, much harder for the insurance companies to provide the appropriate rates to the appropriate groups. I think that our community rating system needs to be modified community rating. I mentioned earlier that we have to have a reasonable rating corridor and we do have a reasonable rating corridor within some extent under the ACA, and that is that three to one ratio. No group can be charged more than three times another group. I think, however, that the criteria that are used for that are too limiting. It is only the age and the location of the group that can be used. Some industries use more health care. Some people use more health care, and there should be a small variance allowed for those that are utilizing more health care than their neighbor. Their neighbor should get a little discount, and those using more should pay a little more, but not 400, 500 percent. We have to make sure we structure it accordingly. So a rating corridor that has a median rating line that's just a dead straight line or even a curved line across a graph, but no variance from that line, I think is too restrictive. If you take that same line and say, let's go plus or minus 10%. So the groups that use the least amount of coverage can get a 10% discount from that line. And the groups that use the most amount of coverage get a 10% increase above that line. 
we're only talking about a 20% variance and it makes a huge difference in keeping the youngest and the healthiest groups covered because when we lose them, that's when we lose affordability for small groups. So I would say to this employer asking the question, your group would find a better overall rate, most likely, even if you're one of those higher risk groups, because rates at large would be held down because we would be working very hard to keep the youngest and the least risk members in the insurance pool making a contribution. The ACA tried to do that through a benefit mandate, but they didn't even mandate it for small groups. So it didn't, didn't have any effect at all. If we keep that mandate in and say, look, we have to have people in the system we can get that in without a mandate, but we can do it by providing them competitive coverage and prevention against gaming. So that if they decide to wait until they get sick, they pay the price for that. Okay, great. Roger, another question, this one from Aaron. How do we make sure that everyone has the right level of skin in the game so that people aren't able to abuse the insurance they have, which I guess he means pay the, the deductible for the year and then just go out and act like it's a free ticket to healthcare versus people who barely can afford their deductible. There's, there's a couple of things there. If we're talking about a concern for those that can barely afford their deductible, well, we need to get their deductibles down. And in order to get deductibles down, we need to get rates down. In order to get rates down, we need to free up the insurance companies to be more creative and more aggressive in their rating and make sure that they can still make money. Under the federal laws and the ACA, if an insurance company makes too, money, too much money, the feds take the money away from them. So that if they make a mistake and lose money, the feds give some of that back. Well, I think we need to let these insurance companies go on their own. They don't need the federal government to subsidize them. They've been managing insurance risk for 100 years. So they should continue to do so. They should be able to take the premium in, manage the risk, and control it. If we want to create high-risk pools state by state to help the individual marketplace, that's probably a very prudent idea. But to bail out insurance companies by taking from another insurance company is simply a recipe for failure. And so what we need to do is allow the insurance companies to make a little bit of money in one year, lose a little bit of money in the next year, and keep competing to provide the best service that they can in order to win their business and survive. We can't take away all of that initiative and create this system that the government just tries to put into a box and create these guidelines that don't let the insurance company do what they do best. That's manage and control costs and risk and do the job. Okay, Aaron says thank you for that. He just uh, sent us a note saying thank you. And now I have a question, Roger, from Dirk, who's clearly been paying attention for the last couple of weeks. He said, do your self-funded plans do the things that you just suggested that all plans should do? Uh, yeah, self-funded plans in general do everything except the guaranteed issue provision. And they don't do the guaranteed issue provision because what employer would want to be forced to self-fund their coverage even if they didn't find it comfortable for them to do so, right? So that's the one thing you can't do in, in self-funded 
is provide guaranteed issue or force guaranteed issue because then you're asking the employer to issue coverage to their employees without an insurance company potentially just doesn't make sense that way. But all the other things, quality coverage, ACA provisions, guaranteed issue for employees within the group. Once a group is issued, new employees are all guaranteed issue. Pre-existing condition clauses are all eliminated. Everybody gets coverage. It works wonderfully. But it doesn't mean it's necessarily for every group today because we, we're in an environment where consumers will shop and they will find out what they feel is best for them. And that's okay. Okay, great. And I have a question from Tanya who says, Roger, I love what you're talking about. You seem really sharp and uh, informed on these matters. So put your crystal ball on for us and tell us where you see healthcare in three to five years going. Well, I, I hate to say it, but I'm not sure that anyone in our Congress is prepared to address this issue on the level that it needs to be addressed with the expertise that it needs to be addressed in order to solve the problems. So three to five years, I would say I see very little change, uh, especially on a three-year mark, because it will take a year or two, and probably not until after the 2020 elections. So, you know, let's face it, we're, we're talking about, or after that range, we're talking about a year already under our belt, and then a year to get the legislation passed, and then a year for enactment. So the three-year mark, we've got nothing. Maybe if the law is written sharply, concisely, and effectively, and it's a simple law designed to correct and amend HIPAA with some minor provisions that need fixing, that could be done in a matter of weeks if somebody really wanted to do it right. And then we just wait for the, everybody to get themselves in line with the rules. It, it wouldn't be hard. So conceivably, there could be action in four years. I just don't see the government making anything that simple. And that's where our challenge comes in. We've got to educate our legislators on how this system works. And we've got a lot of new freshman legislators. We've got people that have no idea how the insurance business works. And they don't even have a comfortable handle on the history of healthcare reform. And without that, you just simply don't have the depth of understanding to write legislation that will fix it. But I will tell you what I would hope for. I would hope for legislation that takes the HIPAA as a building block, gets rid of the loopholes that we've already mentioned in HIPAA, provide full guaranteed issue of coverage, provide full portability, provide rating restrictions so that everybody can be covered at an affordable rate within that reason. And then we need to go after transparency. We need to make sure we can also, as much as we need to keep our insurance companies honest, we have to keep our hospitals, our drug companies, and our providers honest as well. The rate disparity that we see from one facility to another for providing the same procedure is unlike any other product in the country. It is phenomenal that we can see a procedure costs $700 in the same metropolitan area that it costs $7,000. I'm not sure where you see that anywhere else in any other industry. And we can't have 
that kind of challenge. The consumer deserves to know what something costs and they deserve then to pay a fair and reasonable profit above that. They don't deserve to have their hands tied and forced to buy something because it's a matter of life or death and they have no control over the cost or the delivery of that service. All they have to do is bite the bullet and pay or perish. That's not fair to the American people. Roger Tanya says you should run for office and Bill says Roger Bain for Congress 2020. What do you say to people suggesting you should run for office? Um, I, I think, I don't know that I'm the consummate politician. Um, I don't like to make compromises. I like to get things right. And that probably would be a very difficult environment for me to live. Sorry, guys. Based on what I know, Roger, that was a very eloquent and accurate assessment of the situation. Uh, we, let me give people one more minute. We've thrown a lot at them. I want to see if we have any more questions, but right now I don't see any others. Roger, anything else you want to cover? I know we've covered a whole lot of ground today, but we try to keep these things uh, no longer than the time it takes to drink a cup of coffee, and I think we've probably gotten right to that point, wouldn't you say? Yeah, that would be fine. Um, I think if absent of any other questions, I think we've got a good bunch of stuff under our belt today. And if anyone likes to email questions after the fact, they can certainly do that. And we would be happy to uh, make sure we cover them in future meetings. Why don't you give them that email address, Roger? It's on my screen and you should be able to see it, but it's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R dot Bain at benefitindemnity.co. So those of you that are logged on the computer, not just listening to audio, it's right on your screen at the moment. And Bain is B-A-Y-N-E. So yes. Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R uh, dot B-A-Y-N-E at benefitindemnity.co. That's complicated, Roger, but people seem to find their way. Why don't you give them that phone number you like to give out just in case they're driving or they can't get to their email and they want to talk to you about this more? Sure. I'm always available at 443-275-7412. That's four four three two seven five seven four one two. Call me anytime. Great. Thanks, Roger, for all the insights. It's been really uh, eye-opening to me. I took a whole page of notes, and we had some great contributions from our, our audience. We'll look forward to getting back with you next week on April 15th, Tax Day. So hopefully by the time you get with us, you'll have your taxes done, and we will be talking about another aspect of health benefits. Until next week. Goodbye, everyone, and thanks for listening. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. You've been listening to The Benefit Roast, a weekly discussion sponsored by Benefit Indemnity Corporation. Employers in a wide range of fields are using employer-owned health benefits plans to deliver better benefits to their employees at a lower cost. Learn more at BenefitIndemnity.co. That's BenefitIndemnity.co. See you again next week.